John 4. You ever wonder why people uh, give up, really give up on life? And I don't just mean in a suicidal manner, but live in a constant state of disappointment or frustration. I think as humans, we have this innate desire to have a purpose in life. Every single person in this room wants their life to have purpose. And when someone loses purpose or doesn't understand the meaning of their life, the value of your life can be called into question. And the purpose of our life is what drives us toward careers, towards marriage, raising kids, hobbies, any kind of humanitarianism. We all want a meaningful life to feel that we bring value to either our society. This is not necessarily a Christian struggle, but to bring value to our society, to our family, or even really just bring value to ourselves. And some find their value in their work, their identity. The, the meaning for life is wrapped up in what kind of job they do or what they do for a living or the amount of money they make in their career. Some find it in the success of their marriage or in the success of their kids. It's really kind of everywhere around us where we try and find our meaning. Do this and your life will be worth more. It will be more meaningful. And then whatever it is the book is about, whatever is the challenge is, whatever is that you need to change, time management. So we find it in money, fame, friendships, health, power, all have the appeal of helping us find a meaning or a purpose for our life. And really meaning is tied to the success of our life. So you kind of have to find your purpose and then you go find success in the two then create meaning. But if you're not gifted or talented in a particular area, your purpose for life feels small or insignificant compared to someone else that maybe is more successful or does a better job. I could never have a job like theirs or my marriage will never look like their marriage. I can't even compare to being a good parent as they are. And we look at the way in which either God has gifted them or set their life up. And we look and say that they definitely have, for those around us, have better life value or purpose than what we do. But if you place the worth of your life in one of these areas, as I mentioned above, you'll sooner or later begin to question the self-worth of your life. And here's why. When you finally reach the pinnacle of your career, you realize it didn't really provide what you thought it would as far as self-worth. When your marriage turns out to be a disappointment, when your kids stray from the faith, all of these meaningfuls or what, what motivates us, what gives us purpose for life, when they tip in the wrong direction or we never actually make it, then our minds and our entire world begins to crumble. And some of us in this room even have thoughts of suicide creep into our mind. Our life would be better if it was over. Some of us have contemplated really just running away from failures because they're embarrassing to deal with anymore. New culture, new location, new marriage. We are all tricked into believing that the successful, talented, and gifted people we see around us 
have the meaningful lives, and ours is simply pathetic. There might even be some of us where you see your life full of purpose and future now, and it's bright, and you're excited, new career, new family, new marriage, and I'm not questioning your purpose or your excitement. But what happens when those circumstances change, as I mentioned earlier? Well, the story we have been working through in John 4 has changed my life more than I would have imagined, even as relates to my intro about the purpose and meaning of life. I can honestly say I love Jesus in ways I didn't know I could before. I see grace in new and exciting ways that have created a fresh sense of joy for me. My passion for the gospel has been stronger, and I can thank the little book of John for that as well. I took a two-week break from John. We had Easter, and then last week I was on vacation out of town. And so I've had two weeks to brew and think about John 4. I'm thankful John 4 is a long story. Uh, For study time, it's easier for me. You study it all at once and then get to break it up in your teaching. So tonight, I've really had the conclusion of John 4, uh, of this particular narrative. I've had several, several weeks and even months on top of that to think about that. So tonight, what I want to share with you is the reality that Jesus reveals to his disciples that will alter their identity forever. Jesus drops a metaphorical, theological reality bomb on them and gives to the children of the Father their meaning for existence, really for the first time in the gospel. To make sure we kind of gain full impact of Jesus' words, I just want to go back and refresh ourselves just of the narrative of what's happened so far and the setting. I think it'll help us appreciate what Jesus is trying to say to his followers. So we know at this point in story, Jesus is traveling from Galilee or to Galilee, and he has to, it says, he tells us, John tells us in the narrative that he must go through Samaria. Well, we don't really know what those words mean until you get to this section of the narrative because it's this woman that he has to talk to and the interaction with this woman, what it leads to as far as in eternity. And so you, you come to this narrative. Jesus sends the disciples into town, go get food. I'm tired. I'm going to wait here. And as he's waiting here by the well, Jacob's well, this woman comes out. And as we learn uh, through the story of the last few weeks that this woman is coming in the middle of the day because she's avoiding the townspeople, because of the life choices she's made. Who knows what led her to these life choices, but in her mind she's tried five different times with five different men to find meaning for her life, to find purpose, to find value. She has not found it. And so she's with her sixth man. And she comes to meet Jesus. She doesn't know that she has an appointment with Jesus, but Jesus knows he has an appointment. And when she comes up, Jesus immediately talks to her and takes the woman off guard. And she goes, hey, culturally, what are you doing? Jewish men, especially rabbis, do not talk to Samaritan women, let alone women women in public. And Jesus begins to break down all the cultural barriers and begin to lead her to what he describes as being living water. And I mentioned this, and I think it's worth mentioning again because of where this entire narrative is going with Jesus. 
The woman catches on to what Jesus is offering, and in her mind she's thinking, oh, yes, if this is water that wells up inside me and I never have to come to this well again, yes, Jesus, give me what you're offering, I'll take that. And she says in the, in the narrative, I want that so I never have to come back here again. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to be in public. I don't want to have to deal with my reputation. And Jesus says, okay, clearly you're not understanding. So he asks her this question. Or he gives her this statement, go get your husband and come back here. And she goes, I don't have a husband. Of course, Jesus says, you said rightly. You don't have one, for you've had five. And the one you're with right now is not your husband. Completely exposes her reasoning for wanting the water. And then they continue this dialogue of what true worship is. Jesus completely dismantles her entire theological world. She's been taught her entire life that the Samaritan way is the way in which the Messiah is going to come relieve them. And Jesus says, no, where you worship is wrong. How you worship is wrong. Salvation is through the Jews. And the temple does not belong here. It belongs in Jerusalem. And there's coming a day when there will be no place to worship except for in spirit. And I love this phrase. He says, and in truth, because she doesn't have the truth. And she all of a sudden says, oh, now you are sounding very much like the man that's been prophesied about. The, this, this Messiah. The anointed one. And Jesus, the only time he says this in the New Testament, says it to a woman when there's no one else around who has completely destroyed her life. Not the person you would think Jesus would announce. You would think Peter, right? Or you think another apostle. No, he announces it to the woman and says, I am the one. I am that Christ. She hears those words and this is where we pick our narrative back up. So Jesus sets this whole scenario in place to teach the disciples this one truth for them. The purpose of their life was not to live in such a way that they could gain entrance into the kingdom. Remember when Jesus walks into Jerusalem on the donkey and they're, what are they shouting? Hosanna. They're excited about the king that has come to relieve them, he's going to bring up the power, and he's going to relieve them from the Roman rule. And so there's, there's been this constant teaching of how you perform in the law is what gains you entrance into the kingdom. This is why so many people walk up to him and say, I've heard you've been saying, I've heard you've been teaching some interesting things, Jesus, Rabbi. How is it that you say we enter the kingdom? And he completely dismantles their understanding of entering the kingdom and gives them the gospel. Depending on who they talk to, he gives them the law. Performance to the law equals a greater spot in the, in the king's country. But Jesus turns that up on their head and says, actually, the least will be the greatest in the kingdom. Why? Because you don't enter the kingdom through the law. You enter it by faith. So the disciples walk up on this situation. The, the conversation's over. Jesus says, who speaks to you, and he. And as the disciples walk up, it seems odd and out of place that a woman, that, is, that, 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 that this woman is conversing with Jesus. And it's in this precious story with this woman that we learn an invaluable lesson from Jesus, the purpose of every child. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking 
with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I have ever done. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But when he said to them, I have, found, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus promptly really kind of what we say uh, disabuses them or, re, or uh, takes their, their confusion about food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is almost certainly that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 that says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, speaking of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is following this pattern where, he, where you, we have seen this conversation with Jews in the temple. They think he's talking about a physical temple. He's talking about his body. Nicodemus talking about being reborn again. He's talking about being spiritual. And then with this woman, she's talking about literal water. He's talking about spiritual water. And now with the disciples, they're misunderstanding him. And he's now looking at it from a physical food, more on a spiritual food. So Jesus is taking the physical and using it to paint a picture of the spiritual. So what he's saying is what sustains me What I feed on to give me strength in life, where I find my energy to carry on, is not found in the food I eat, but in my Father's will. Now, of course, Jesus knew that his disciples wondered what he was talking about, and what he was talking to the woman about. They saw her as a distraction, as a disturbance to their pursuit of holiness. So that's the scene. They walk up. And did you catch what they said? What, does, what is he seeking? So maybe in their minds when Jesus says, oh, I have food. Did this woman bring him food? Did he take food from the woman? And then they, they say, wait a minute. What, who, who gave you food? And Jesus flips it and says, oh, you don't understand. It's not the food that you've brought to me. It's a different motivation. Look at verse 35 real quick. Jesus explains his words by continuing to use this picture of uh, food pictures. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Now, none of us say that. That must have been a phrase in common language in the common day. No one's ever said that to me. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Real quick, go back to verse 30 and notice who is walking towards them during this conversation. The woman just went. And told them this story about the Messiah, verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the woman goes. They're now coming. This conversation's happening between Jesus and the disciples. And as he's finishing it, in my mind, I'm assuming, because he begins to talk about the ministry of the gospel, he is pointing to these townspeople that are walking towards him and says, Look and see, the fields are white. Look at verse 36. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent to you, I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. I think what he's talking about here is the work of the Father and the work of the Son together. They're the ones who cause regeneration. They're the ones who have working on the people's heart. And what he's saying is you have the joy and the, and the, and the privilege. He says you are even earning your wages now of gathering in the fruit, gathering in the fields of the harvest. And the two together are bringing joy if I don't think anybody here farms, uh, I know that someone was uh, putting a little farm in the back of their uh, house the other day. <laughs> I saw pictures of that. But we don't understand that there's not a ton of joy in those who are cultivating the ground, laboring, getting things ready. But there is a lot of joy to see the fruits of your labor as you come back in and see what, has, what, what you prepared, what you grew. And Jesus is saying the joy that you have is that you are reaping. It literally says in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. The joy, what he's saying is the payment of our labor is to see the regeneration of souls, to see those who have been transformed by the powers of the Spirit. So we are seeing our payment now. We see the miracle of salvation now. And as soon as Jesus finishes telling the disciples about the need to be harvesting, the woman they were questioning brings one of the largest harvests in the Bible as described for one individual. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the, which I don't think Jesus documented everything she ever did, but he revealed to her her life. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If we go back and remind ourselves of the conversation between this woman and Jesus, Jesus told her she had almost everything wrong with what she believed. Everything that she had tried to enamor or tried to to show a Jewish rabbi, yeah, I know stuff about the Bible, I know stuff about the law. Jesus says she's wrong. The wrong people for salvation, the location for the temple, all of it. In reality, she knew one thing when she left to tell the entire town what she had found. She knew that Jesus was the Savior of the world. She knew that. So she turns, and with the motivation being enough, she runs and tells the good news of what she had found. In essence, the zeal of the woman overpowered her ignorance. Yet we see that woman, kindled by a holy zeal, does not spare herself or her reputation to magnify the name of Christ. The people she's avoiding, she runs back to. And as she runs back to them, she announces, Oh, trust me, this man knew who I was. And notice, John gives us enough details. What she does say is enough for them to know he is the Savior of the world. 
And so on the basis of this woman's witness, despite or perhaps precisely because of her notorious past, they went out of the city and came to Christ. So the question is, could Jesus have sent a better witness? He didn't send. He sent the disciples in to get food and then sends a woman with the worst reputation of the town back in to bring salvation. According to the disciples, yes, they could have, he could have sent a better witness. But according to the story, it tells us otherwise. Now, I want to be clear about Jesus' point concerning food. When he says, I don't, I don't need to eat. I'm sustaining myself on the, on, on the obedience of my father. It's a powerful illustration that we should not miss. I think it's important. We're going to dive into it. We, we, we struggle to value food today as food would have been valued in Jesus' time. Finding something to sustain your life in America is not very hard. We, we can pretty much find food anywhere. Go to any gas station or fast food restaurant. It's not hard to find food that's consumable. We don't really worry about where we're going to find it. So food is kind of a luxury for us in America. But not necessarily for the sustaining of our lives. We don't think about it that way. What am I going to eat tomorrow to make sure I don't die, to keep my life alive? We're thinking about what can I eat that's going to make me feel good. That's what I eat. Jesus is telling the disciples that he doesn't need food to give them life. He finds life in obeying the will of the Father, which is he sends them to get food. He's talking to a woman who needs water. Clearly his body is in need and he's telling them, and they're seeing it's a human being, probably tired, needing energy, needing water, and he's telling them, I don't need those to live. And the Father's will that I am finding, my, finding the way in which I live my life in is to reap the harvest. The picture Jesus is giving is this. What drives the purpose of his life is found in the Father, not in anything in this world. What drives him? The concept of food or even bread is used all throughout the Bible. Uh, even in Jesus' prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. He's not talking about that which we eat, not f- literal bread, but it's a symbol of who provides life to us, which is the Father. The Father provides life to us. So, Jesus' life is not sustained by what he eats or his purpose for living is not sustained by what he eats or what he drinks. He's saying my reason and purpose for living is greater than that. And here's why. Every person in this room has the same purpose for life. We just don't know it. We all have been given the privilege of reaping the benefits of the harvest. See, Jesus' purpose was outside I mean, think about Jesus' life just from a secular standpoint. Low-end job, carpenter. No house, is what he said. I got nowhere to lay my head. Financially poor, constantly asking for handouts. Um, Publicly shamed, died as a criminal. Abandoned by all of his followers. So if Jesus were to base his life on family, job, and fame... He would have no meaning for life in the end. But that's not what sustains his life. It's the exact opposite. It has nothing to do with happening in the world, but it's everything that's happening outside of the world as he's 
working in it. To simply bring someone into the knowledge of Jesus so that they can be transformed is what he's getting at. So this woman, through the disciples, see the woman. They don't see her as someone needing the transforming power of the gospel. They see her as someone who is unclean and unfit to be talking with Jesus. Jesus sees her completely opposite, and that's his point. My purpose for life and yours are completely different, the way in which you see them. So if, you, if your mindset changes, my purpose in life, what I focus on, what gives me meaning, has nothing to do with what kind of job I have, how successful my marriage is, what kind of parent you have turned out to be, or your popularity. And it's hard not to see it that way. It really is. If you have career failure, merit any of those, any kind of failure, it's hard not to wrap your meaning in that. As a pastor, it's, not hard, it's, not, it's hard not to wrap the success of this church up in the meaning of my life. If this church fails, my meaning in life is failed. Well, yes, that, that very much is a pull for pastors. Very much so. But we all have the same mission. And Christ takes this long story with the most obscure person to demonstrate it. And this is the purpose. He says he leaves us here on this earth so we can have the joy of one, of being one of his instruments for evangelism. That's the mission. That's our purpose. If the purpose of life is to proclaim Christ, then it doesn't matter what you do for a living. If our purpose, the way in which we find meaning in this life, why we would fight to stay alive, why we live every day to sustain this body is found in sharing Christ, it really doesn't matter what you do to earn a dollar. Your life has the same value as mine. As the most fam- as your life has the same value as the most famous Christian or the lowliest Christian, as the most famous wealthiest person that you respect in your mind or as the person who's destroyed their life as the woman at the well if you have a failed marriage or kids that have abandoned the faith all of that doesn't change the purpose of your life here on this earth which is the joy of sharing salvation I mean, if you show this on a way down practical level moms or even stay home dads it can feel as if you don't all you do in life is just make mac and cheese and do laundry that's the extent of my existence and I may add in a little bit of coin into the budget on some side jobs and when the kids are ungrateful and when your husband's ungrateful and your neighbors are annoying and the dog poops in the house you begin to question, what am I doing with my life? What you're doing with your life is giving the joy of salvation to your children every day as the most important value you can give. Giving Christ to your neighbors and giving Christ to your friends. That is the meaning and purpose of your life. To be a perfect housewife, to be a perfect husband, they don't exist. You see, it isn't what you do or what you haven't done that gives you the meaning. 
It's what you live for that gives you the purpose of your life. We are called to live on the very words of Christ. And as we live on these words, which is the gospel, we are then called to then turn and give, those, give that to others. So the value of your job shifts in your mind. No matter what you do, no matter what your occupation is, it's only an ends to a means. That's all it is. Your job is only an ends to a means. It gives you the ability to provide for your needs and the needs of your family, and more importantly, to participate in giving toward the gospel advancement in the world. That's all your job is. Your job does not equal the meaning of your life or the purpose of your life. And if you do see it that way, you are soon to be disappointed, whether now or in 30 years from now. So it doesn't matter what you do to make money. I mean, it needs to be legal and ethical. But it doesn't matter in the world's eyes what you do to make money because the purpose of money is not to give you life. Christ is to do that. But here's the objection. I I can hear it already. It's been in my mind, so I wrote down these objections because they came to my mind. And if they came to my mind, I know they came to your mind. Because you're starting to do the math, right? Okay, meaning and purpose of life is to proclaim Christ and reap the harvest. Objections. I'm not good at talking to people. I might say the wrong thing. I understand that. But it doesn't take much to know what to say. The woman is a great example of this. Everything she had known is wrong, but she got one thing right. I know that he is the savior of the world, and I know that trusting in him by faith is the only hope I have. So with that message, here's what I want to remind us as a church. This is what we learn from the Bible. This is what we learn as the encouragement as Paul is encouraging those who understand this is the focus of our life. This is where we find meaning. This is why we fight to stay alive and we fight to help each other. Remember that we are not called to do this alone. This isn't an individual pursuit. This is a body. We, we pursue this together. You don't, know how, you don't have to know everything. Just know that Christ saves sinners by faith alone. That is the most important. If you're going to lead someone to Jesus, I promise you, you don't need to know all the major doctrines of the Bible. You don't need to know all the church history. And that is important to know. And I want to teach it to you. But to bring people to harvest, to, to, to bring in the harvest to Christ, I promise you, you need to know Christ and Him crucified. So we don't do it alone. There's not a ton of information that's needed. And where we have to trust in the power is in the, the spirit and not in your ability to persuade. Some of you hate to argue. Not me. I like to argue. I think it's fun. I did a lot of that this last week. I enjoyed it a lot, especially because I knew I was right. Some of you hate to argue, and you don't even like to persuade yourself on what you want to eat tomorrow. It's like, someone tell me, so I don't have to persuade anybody to do anything. I don't even like arguing with myself. I get that. You don't have to be a persuasive person. You just need to trust in the Spirit's power. But not everyone has the same role. So when people hear a sermon on evangelism or they're listening to, this is a great way to double down and make people guilty. I don't want to do that. I want everyone to walk out of here empowered and encouraged. And so I believe everyone has a role as it relates to this purpose for our church, the purpose for our life. And it's this. 
Some of us are great at bringing people to events like men's Bible study or women's Bible studies or, or home fellowship group. You meet someone, you're that smiling face that draws them in, and just that you have the right way to invite someone. And they're like, yeah, I think I want to go. Wherever they're a part of, that's what I want to be a part of. And that's an amazing role to have. Some of you can pray for the strength of our church and for the faith of the unbeliever. Paul talks about this all the time. Pray for the congregation. Pray for the unbeliever. Some of you are amazing prayer warriors. You really do focus your attention, and I appreciate that. I love to know when that you're praying for us. And that's important. As you, as you, one day you may be bedridden. You may not even be able to talk. You may not be able to walk or talk. The, but that doesn't mean the meaning for your life is now gone because you can't do what you did before. You still have purpose. Your prayers still matter. They're still encouraging and they still move people to Christ. And some of you are just flat out great at sharing your faith. Bold, excited, and, and uh, are great at talking with people. We need people like that in our church. That's not everyone here. If I asked in some of you to walk with me across the street into some supermarket and we're going to go share our faith, you would rather die on the spot and go see Jesus than to have to do that. And I am completely sympathetic to that. I understand that. Some of you are great at making money, and this is not a joke. We need people who are good at making money so they can give to the needs of the gospel. Everyone has a role in our church. Everyone has a part. It's not we're all going to go out and be pounding and uh, preaching on street corners. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. We, are, we later learned in the New Testament what each person's role, each person's gift is in the church. Some of you are incredible at encouraging the saints who are worrying, hurting, hurting. Some of you just have the gift of encouragement. Guess what? If you're encouraging a hurting saint, and that saint is one who is also a, a harvester, you're encouraging that person to stay strong in the faith. That's still gospel ministry. It's all related to the gospel ministry. Some of you are awesome at working with kids. We need that. We need people who are great with working at kids. It gives us, again, opportunities to preach the gospel in places like this. Some of you are perfect at making new people feel welcomed. Some of you are just incredible at that. The moment they come in, I've heard words like, wow, I felt like I walked into home. I felt like I walked into a place that was my place. All of that is related to the ministry of the gospel as we harvest people in. Everyone has a role. So when I, when I say that the meaning of your life, don't think like, oh, well, then I, I thought I had meaning and now I don't because I'm not good at evangelism. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus is saying the mission of our life is about the ministry of the gospel to us here and, of course, to those around us. So all of this is gospel ministry. We all can find our place in participating in the gospel and harvesting. And until you die, you have every reason to live life to its fullest. And to its fullest is not the success that we normally think it is. To the the fullest is to the proclamation of the gospel and your involvement in it. You're going back to Jesus Rejection of food. Some would say that we must not waste our time with meaningless things of life and only focus on evangelism. That's not what Jesus is saying either. He isn't rejecting food because he needs to evangelize. He's using food as an illustration. Otherwise, we'd have to say you actually have to be born again and 
all the other problems with the illustration. Don't take the illustration too far. Just from a narrative standpoint, Jesus is actually known by the Pharisees as being a drunk and a glutton. So clearly Jesus drank and ate. It wasn't that he never ate any food and somehow just sustained his power by the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. Jesus had no problem with eating. He sent his disciples in to buy food. He's using it as an illustration. And the reason I mention that is sometimes we can we, we see that the Christian life should only be about gospel opportunities. Where we're, every, every, everything that we do has to be so that we can be giving out a track or we can be inviting someone in. That's, I want to back up and say that is not what I'm saying. There's a difference of what drives you. You have this over here, my job, my marriage, my kids. All of my energy is being pushed by this. This is where I find my meaning for everything that I do versus the gospel and the glory of the gospel and eternity in bringing people into Christ and my role in that, that's where I find my meaning. The difference. It's what drives you. I have have nothing wrong with eating a good meal with you, which I've done. Nothing wrong with playing games and entertainment. What I'm getting at as a church is that we have to realize that if the gospel is not our priority and we lose focus of the gospel, the priority, you will lose focus on what actually is the meaning of your life. So every part of our lives fit into the purpose of our lives, which is the gospel. Now, I want to say this as well. I think it's helpful. The amount of people we bring to Christ is not the success or failure of our lives. Please hear that. We cannot control who will or who will not believe. The harvest, we've been given one responsibility, to go gather it, but we have no idea who that is or how many that is. That is in the hands of the Father. So we cannot look at the success of our lives based upon, oh, look, we've won 10,000 people to Christ. That is not in our hands either. We have the joy of holding a life-changing message. We've been commissioned to give that message, and that is the purpose of our life. That being said, we must assume everyone needs the gospel. And in Franklin and in Spring Hill, that means that we're going to often be calling Christians to believe in the gospel. I know that sounds ironic, but at our church, we don't assume anyone, Christian or Catholic, pagan or not, actually understands the gospel. The church at large is often confused and distracted, and that's why we bring this message. I, do, I was at a conference this weekend, and I was greatly disappointed um, because I am convinced and I'm very passionate about the clarity and protecting of the gospel message. This, this. And when I say gospel, what I'm realizing is that what I think is gospel and what people around me think is gospel is not the same thing. It's very different. They think, oh, you're just talking about that time where you call people down the aisle and they give their hearts to Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. It's the reality, the, sh- the, 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 the shifting reality of living in an alien righteousness, living outside. I see myself through the eyes of God 
as Jesus is my righteousness, my obedience, my payment, everything, my entire life changes. That message, living by faith alone in that message. Well, this conference focused more on fixing the racial divide in our country and in our society to the point that the gospel became secondary. Now, I am all for fixing abortion in our country, uh, fixing the problem of sex trafficking and problems of marriage. And there's so much evil in this world and that's centered around even in our cities, Franklin and Nashville. But when you look at the purpose of our church and the purpose of a believer, we've been called to one purpose, and that is the ministry of the gospel. Now, I think we should absolutely, where we can be involved, should be involved. We should stand up for truth and for justice. But it's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is the ministry of the gospel to the people around them. I just want to read you a couple of verses from Paul who talks about his mission. And then we'll close. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present every, everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, not his own, but his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Or in 1 Timothy 4.9 he says, This saying is a trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And then lastly, Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. All of these talk about the toil and the struggle, but they all push back. He's not saying that the struggle is towards any of the cultural issues at all. The struggle is going towards the faith in the gospel, presenting people mature in Christ. That maturity is not left up to us. That's the power of the gospel at work. So when Paul says, I don't, when I come to you, I don't want to make anything known among you except for Christ and Him crucified. And all of this, the problems in the churches that he's had, he constantly points and focuses it back down on the gospel. So if your purpose for life is the gospel, then why would we want anything else each week than Christ? As a church and as an individual, as a pastor, I forget Christ. I forget his power. I forget who he is. It's easy for me to wrap my identity up in the success of this church or in the success of my kids or in my wife or anything in life. When I remind myself that the way in which the Father sees me and my purpose and my meaning in life has nothing to do with my status here, what I've done in the past or what I'll do in the future, my status is safe There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My life has 100% meaning until I die or until the Father comes and takes me home because I've been commissioned with the most important job in the universe and that is to be a part of a gospel mission. And everyone plays their part. 
When I read that and got ready to give this to you, I couldn't wait. Because I know everyone in this room has looked at their life and went, man, you know, it didn't quite turn out the way I thought it was going to. Whatever it was. This isn't really how I saw my life going. And some of you have struggled through depression or struggled through suicidal thoughts. And you will probably again because you know what? Our flesh always is pulled at. The world does an amazing job at telling us this is how you find a meaningful life. I had to this morning as I'm getting ready to preach this remind myself of a situation I found myself in and I said that doesn't in in eternity when all is burned and all is gone and this world has been flushed away that won't matter. It won't. But what will matter is my standing before Christ and my standing before Christ is secured and he's given me one purpose in life and that's to share that with others as best I can. Here's what's even more encouraging. Are you ready for this? you're not going to be judged on how well you do on your mission. The concept is you've been set free to go give. It's not, this is how much you better go give. What I love in the illustration with the apostles, he just says, you see all those people? You get to do that. You not only get to do it, but you get to earn your wages while you do it, which is the gift the joy of seeing someone transformed by the gospel. Have at it. Have at it. What Jesus had to do first was break down their biases of the culture. Now, we don't struggle with cultural biases here. We just have all kinds of others. I'm not good. I can't do that. I don't have the time. There's all kinds of other things that need to be broken down in our minds. You are the ones that can do that. And I think the only way we continue to do that is to continue to focus on Christ and our need for him. So let's go ahead and get ready for communion.